Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Bowshield wasn't satisfied with any of the bike lubes on the market, so they engineered their own. Their research proved that none of the Teflon, silicone, or synthetic formulas held up when exposed to dusty, dirty, and muddy conditions. For that reason, Bowshield T9 is designed to offer long-term lubrication and protection in any environment. Bowshield T9 waterproofs your bike chain, lubricates cables, and prevents rust with its effective all-in-one formula. The paraffin-based lube flushes out dirt and old lubricants, displaces moisture, and penetrates moving parts. Then it dries to a clean, continuous wax film that performs better than Teflon and lasts up to 200 miles. Bowshield T9 is designed to resist picking up dust, dirt, or mud, which makes it a good choice for all riding conditions. This month, Bowshield is giving away a free prize pack to a lucky listener. Go to singletracks.com slash Bowshield to enter and visit Bowshield.com to learn more or click the links in the show notes. Hey everybody, welcome to the Single Tracks podcast. My name is Jeff and today my guest is Vittorio Platania. Vittorio is the marketing manager for the Formula Group based in Italy, and he's here to fill us in on everything we need to know about mountain bike brakes. Thanks for joining us, Vittorio. Thank you guys very much. I'm very happy to be here with you today. So let's start with an overview. How do hydraulic brakes work, starting, I guess, at the lever? Yeah, the way how they hydraulic brake works is in theory very simple you have a piston which is uh, first of all is a closed system because um, as you may know oil is not compressible Mm -hmm. so it's a closed piston with oil inside this is the reason why it's very important not to have hair inside because hair is compressible and uh, you have a piston from one side which you control with your master cylinder with your lever and uh, when you push that piston from that side you're pushing the oil which is not compressible that is pushing the piston the pistons and the pistons are pushing your pads this is how it works of course the system needs to be closed with no air inside and well balanced because it's everything about leverage ratio. So uh, the way how you design the master the master cylinder and the way how you design the caliper mm-hmm. will establish will tell you how the feeling of the brake is gonna be is gonna be uh, at first first place. Then you can add some little things to change that feeling a little bit. But the main feeling is made by the way you design the brake. Yeah. Well, and in a hydraulic system, you're basically multiplying force, right? Like the force you put in at the lever uh, and the master cylinder is, is then multiplied once it reaches the caliper. Am I saying that right? 
Exactly, exactly. This is exactly how it works. It's like it's like having a very a good uh, leverage ratio from your side. So uh, with a relative small amount of pressure on the lever, you can have a very strong power on the rotor, on the pads. Yeah. And that's one of the main advantages of hydraulic brakes over mechanical brakes, right? I mean, these days, everything is hydraulic when you talk about mountain bike brakes for the most part. Um, but early on, these were mechanical systems, right? Where you had a cable and, you know, you pull the cable as much as you pull the cable. That's how much it's going to squeeze the caliper, right? Exactly. Exactly. This is the real advantage. And this is the reason why... Uh, by then, I remember, uh, if, you, if you remember, we had also, how do you call the cam, cam, like pads, like non-disc brake, but uh, hydraulic actuated. Oh, right. Like rim brakes. Yeah, exactly. Rim brakes, but hydraulic actuated. Hmm. They were way better than the mechanic actuated one because of uh, the leverage ratio. They, I wouldn't say better, but they were more powerful. <laughs> sure, <laughs> depends on the, the application, but they were uh, more powerful. So, uh, yeah, the first call, this is the, at first place, this is the, the reason why uh, hydraulic disc brakes are an advantage, I would say. Yeah. Well, you sort of hinted at it, but what are some of the variables that go into making a set of brakes more powerful or giving brakes more stopping power? Wow, that that's a huge topic because every single thing you change in a system will affect the power, the feeling, pretty much everything on the mm -hmm. brake. I'm mm -hmm. talking about the sides of the of the master cylinder, so the amount of oil that you can use, uh, the way how, uh, or, or sorry, for example, the, um, uh, the numbers of pistons, the diameters of the pistons. So every single thing you change will affect the feeling and of course the power. In order to make it more powerful, I make an example, for instance, so you could have like the same system as we have on the Cura 2 piston and the Cura 4 piston with uh, one caliper with two piston and another caliper with uh, four piston. The four piston is more powerful, uh, but sometimes while you're riding, the perception of power and the real power are two different things. For instance, if you have uh, a, a, a brake which has a very strong bite, maybe you have the feeling that you are used, you're having more power on your brake, but uh, maybe it's not. Our Cura 4, for example, has a little bit less bite than the Cura uh, 2 piston because it's the same amount of oil uh, pushing uh, 4 piston instead of 2 but it's more powerful. So to answer your question, when it comes to power, it's not so easy to define what actual power is on a, on a disc brake. Because you also, but this is, uh, I don't want to open another topic, uh, <laughs> you also have to um, consider the range of use. For example, 
I'm sure you know that some magazines, some review out there, especially here in Europe, they use uh, like the labor test to see how the the brake, uh, how powerful is the brake. Yeah. And uh, by doing this, most of the time they push the brake to the limits. Uh, that means like rotor on fires and stuff like that, <laughs> something that you never reach in a riding situation. Right. And uh, if your brake performs well at that stage, that means that is the most powerful. But unfortunately, this is not true because the um, uh, the way we describe the the this the, the brake the hydraulic brake the hydraulic brake is a little bit more like a, a lung so there are so many things that can affect the brake from the outside the heating temperature so and the, the brake will change uh, its performance based on uh, these elements that means that maybe a brake that is super powerful in that scenario, which is not a riding, a riding scenario where like the rotor is on fire and stuff like that, has not the same power in a riding scenario where you apply, I don't know, maybe two kilogram uh, power uh, like leverage on the lever. So uh, because uh, every stage you are with the brake, the brake will react in a different way. It's like having uh, having a shock. When you set your shock, you are uh, you are set with rebound and compression, or your forks. Then you go uh, down the hill for thirty minutes, and the system get warmer. Uh, and the oil and the rebound, the setting will change a little bit. It's exactly the same with the uh, with the. So it's very hard to to say which is or how powerful a brake is if you do not set first a specific range of use. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, it sounds like, too, that a lot of it is about feel as well. I mean, we may perceive a brake to not be strong or to not give a lot of stopping power, but really it comes down to feel. That initial bite, like you said, yeah, there are just so many factors. And... It's interesting too, we're seeing a lot of people, mountain bikers deciding to go to four piston brakes just because I guess it, it has a better feel. I mean, but you would never add like six pistons to a brake, would you? I mean, is that, does that make sense? Is there any need to do that? No. No, no, absolutely not from our point of view, of course. So <laughs> I tell you something, we were we had a lot of discussion before doing the four piston because the we had the feeling that our two piston the cura two piston which actually is a very powerful two piston with a 26 uh, millimeter uh, diameter pistons so as very big pistons we had the feeling that were no need at all for for a four pot caliber that brake out of the box won uh, the Junior Downhill World Cup with Finn Hiles, uh, the uh, World Champ with uh, Miranda Miller, the women, woman, women World Champ. And that was a Cura 2 piston straight out of the box. 
and uh, okay, someone could tell oh, that's downhill. They don't use brake. Believe me, they use brakes a lot. <laughs> right. <laughs> They do use brakes. May they don't use chains sometimes, but they do use brakes. <laughs> so, uh, so there was a big discussion because, of course, there was a, a request from the market to have a, to have a four piston because people, uh, most of the riders, they want to see a four piston on their enduro or downhill bike, mm-hmm. and we did the four piston for that way because, uh, to be honest, at first place if you have a very powerful two piston a four piston you're just adding something more to the to the system mm-hmm. and something that can that can make it work worse in some sense right because you have two pistons more you have to manage more the way how they came out how they come back the rollback so uh, of course if you add something to the system let's say that the system is more fragile so why you have to put other two piston if you have a great two piston right but again this was the request of the mass market and we wanted to do a brake even more powerful than the cura two pistons mm. and we did the cura four which if you ask me is stupid power it's like <laughs> really it really it i mean i'm sure you had sometimes that experience when you jump uh, you have a drop you drop something with your bike mm-hmm. and maybe uh, you still have your hand uh, your finger on the rear brake lever when you land and it's not a big deal because the impact is so big that at least at the very beginning, the the rear wheel, it's going to move anyway. Right. Uh, not with the Cura 4. Not with the Cura 4. <laughs> if you have your finger on your rear wheel while you're landing, your rear wheel, it's stopped. It doesn't move. <laughs> yeah. Do not move. So I'm not saying that this power is, uh, um, let's say, not useful on a mountain bike. But it requires a very smart rider. Uh, so, uh, yeah, to answer your question, the four pots is something that, if you ask me, should be used. Uh, I'm talking about the good four pot, not for many riders out there, because 99% of the 90% of the riders maybe they are good with a two piston. And uh, yeah, four pot is more powerful, but you don't need more than that power. It's, it's, it's not mountain bike anymore. Maybe a motorcycle, but not even a motorcycle. But really? yeah, interesting. Well, you mentioned one of the other variables that can affect a brake's stopping power is the oil that you use, the the hydraulic fluid. So why does Formula use mineral oil in the Cura 4 brakes? What's the advantage of mineral oil over other choices? Mm, yeah, I think that Formula was the last company to jump on the mineral oil thing. Uh, beside, I would say, uh, ZRAM, which is still with DOT. But uh, for the mineral oil guys, <laughs> let's say... I think we are the last one and we jumped on that uh, technology with the Cura. And that was three years ago, four years ago. 
So the reason why we took so long for us to have the mineral oil is because the mineral oil we were testing before the cura was not good for our standards mm. as the DOT. And we didn't want to compromise the performance of the brake. That was a big demand, especially in uh, Europe and especially in Germany, for mineral oil. Uh, you could easily ask uh, how things go uh, in Germany. Like dealers, they don't want to have to bleed or to manage or to service uh, non-mineral oil brakes. Uh, so we wanted to, let's say, go um, respond, answer to this uh, market request. But we wanted to do it in a good way. So we took um, almost three years to develop our own mineral oil, which is different from the others. If you look at the Cura mineral oil, it's completely transparent. It looks like water. Because the problem with mineral oil is that the, 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 the advantage of mineral oil is that it's not hygroscopic compared to, compares to DOT. So the DOT can, uh, because it's hygroscopic, can absorb um, water, humidity. So uh, let's say that the performance of the DOT will, how do you say that, will get worse and worse. Yeah, in it degrades that. over time. Well, it degrades over time. Where the mineral oil, because it's not hygroscopic, will stay, it will degrade a little bit at the beginning, but then it's stable in the time. Mm, okay. So this is an advantage of the mineral oil. But the disadvantage of mineral oil, uh, the disadvantage of mineral oil uh, is that most of them, are uh, the boiling point and the freezing point are way, the boiling point is lower than the DOT and the freezing point is higher than the DOT. Hmm. And we wanted to have almost the same performance as the DOT. So in the end, we find our own recipe for the mineral oil and we reached uh, like, we have a product in the end, uh, which is our mineral oil, which is a boiling point, which that is almost the same as the DOT, mm -hmm. and a freezing point that is lower than the DOT, mm -hmm. and it's very convenient for bike riders. I don't know, biking in North Europe in winter, so you don't have that weird feeling on your brakes. So, yeah. And in the end, uh, we uh, we jumped on the mineral oil, but only once we had the right oil for our brakes. Yeah, interesting. Well, you mentioned that uh, brakes are a closed system, and so you need to make sure that the only thing that's in the system is that oil. There's no air bubbles or things like that. And and once those bubbles do form, you need to bleed the system, right? How, how do bubbles get into a system in the first place? Well, many ways, I would say uh, many ways. Of course, the first one is that uh, they're not properly bleed. <laughs> That's the first <laughs> right. So yeah, it's there to begin with. And the most common, 
Yeah, and that's the most common one. And when I'm saying that, I'm not just saying that is the customer or the rider. It's, mm-hmm. It can be the factory. But please consider that most of the time when you get the new brakes, uh, you're gonna short. You're going to shorten the hose. Right. So uh, it's. I would say that the case, or put it in a different way. Uh, 90% of the time, maybe even more than 90% of the time, when you get a new pair of brakes, you short the hose, you put it on your bike, and you re-bleed. So uh, not very often you are riding with a factory bleed. At least it's not the brake that you are find that you find on your bike, the bike that you are uh, that you are uh, buying at the shop. So. So that's the first bleeding. Then uh, it can be something in the system because the system is not 100% sealed, I would say. And this could be many, many things. For example, could be uh, because you, the system is damaged, can be from the factory or can be because you crashed, you bent something in the system and then by using that, uh, you get some hair in. Or maybe you are using the the wrong kind of oil, and mm. uh, the oil would wear the O-ring uh, in a bad way because it's not the right oil for that brakes, and then you will get air in it. Or maybe, for example, uh, we do this often with uh, with uh, we face that often with our brakes. You are not using. Uh, uh, original pads, and you are using pads which are painted in the in the plate, mm-hmm. and because they overheat, that painting will melt and will stuck into the pistons, and can damage the piston or causing more friction or more like free space between the piston and the caliper, and you get air in it. So it can be. Many, many reasons why you get hair, uh, air in your brakes. Hmm. Interesting. And it sounds like, too, the hose is a part of that as well. I mean, the hose, I would imagine, needs to be designed to handle those pressures and to not, you know, wear out or introduce holes or gaps or anything, right? Like, how important are the hoses? The hose is very important, and of course, uh, this is one of the first things that uh, when you damage, you will get air into the brakes because maybe you scratch the hose somewhere because of a crash or uh, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, it is very, uh, very important. For example, we have two lines of hose that mainly are available for our OE. And one is Kevlar, which is way, way more expensive. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the reason why we don't put it in our aftermarket brake. Uh, and uh, it's less compressible. It, it will expand less than a standard hose. Okay. That, that means that you have even more bite on the brakes. But this doesn't mean doesn't means that is necessary better, hmm. because maybe. You want a different feeling on your brake, and you don't like uh, a very strong bite. So a Kevlar hose will not be ideal for you. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, this is very important. One thing that 
uh, it's very important to understand that m- designing a brake that is good for every rider out there is impossible. <laughs> yeah. This, uh, I kid you not, it's not possible. You have to do compromises uh, because the brake is probably the the components on your bike which is more related to if you think about that maybe even more than suspension if you have a very if you have a, a rider that maybe is not really into suspension maybe he can go along even he can go away even with a not really nice suspension set but most of the riders they are kind of picky on their brakes and the feeling, the position, the lever, the distance of the lever. So uh, the brake is is a very sensitive component from this uh, point of view. Yeah. Well, yeah, it seems like that, that makes it a real challenge to offer products, yeah, that fit everybody's needs. And, and one of those areas is brake adapters. I mean, you know, most people are going to need an adapter depending on, you know, the size of rotor that they use. Is it just a manufacturing reason for not designing the calipers for a certain size of rotor? Or um, is, there, is there something else going on? Well, uh, we don't really have this approach because uh, our calipers are good for any size of rotor. So you can use, uh, even with the Cura uh, two-piston, you can use a 203 uh, rotor and a 203 caliper. And mm-hmm. we always did like that. So if you're talking about other manufacturers, uh, may I not, I'm not the right person to uh, answer to that thing, but I assume as a consumer that you also need it because you have to have a wider range and to categorize better your brakes. So, and you want people to have, like, let's say, a more specific product for uh, cross country, let's say, mm-hmm. and a more specific product for downhill. And uh, but this is not our approach. When we first came out. Uh, with the Cura two pistons, I I personally had a very hard time trying to explain people uh, the intended use because the intended use was just stopping bikes and then <laughs> you choose the bike to right. be honest. And uh, the Cura two piston was used at the Cape Epic and then uh, at the downhill workup. So, what's the intended use? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Right, <laughs> it's brake. It will stop your bike. So, uh, yeah, it's not our approach. We do brakes. Uh, uh, if we do differentiate our range, we do mainly based on weight. For example, mm-hmm. you want a lighter brake for your cross-country bike and you don't really care about weight on your enduro bike. But that's the only difference, not really based on power or uh, design. Yeah. Well, what are some of the design considerations when it comes to disc rotors? You know, I mean, I think most people recognize that uh, larger rotors are typically going to be found on more gravity-oriented bikes. Uh, but, but what are the things that you think about in terms of sizing the rotors? Well, uh, when you design a rotor, uh, and this is very challenging, designing a rotor. 
First of all, because when you design a rotor, you're designing pretty much three rotors, three different products, because you have the 160, the 180, and to the 203. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's not necessarily true. I would say that it's always wrong, uh, or let's say not true, that a good design for the 203 or the perfect design for the 203 is the perfect design for the 160. Mm. So, because they are very different rotors, so you have to find the compromise. And often you will see also in our range that they seem to be exactly the same rotor, but they do have differences. Even if the main shape is the same, but maybe like the arms or other little things are a little bit different because you cannot do exactly the same rotor and make it and making it just bigger or smaller and pretend it's going to be perfect for that size. So that's that's the first thing. Then again, it's a compromise. For example, the rotor we had before the actual one was a super light rotor and uh, it was very very thin some people loved that because mm-hmm. it was it was very light on the bike and because it was the bite was super strong the way i was designed with the big holes and stuff like that but it was a little bit noisy because if the rotor if thin is thin you have more vibration Uh and this vibration can resonate with the frame, especially the rear brake and give you noises. And uh, we had this, this time where some people was actually liking that noise because I'm not talking (laughs) about, I'm not talking about squeaking brakes. It's not kind of noise. It was more something like a, something like that hmm, yeah and, uh, which is typical of motorcycle i don't know if you have experience with motorcycle this is typical for motorcycle brakes uh-huh. and some people that was motorcycle and mountain bike people was loving that brake but for example a lot of bikers especially in germany in europe which are very picky with noise, I would say also in Canada, mm-hmm. they were just like, no, you need to do a rotor, which is a less noisy. <laughs> a quiet rotor. A quieter, exactly. <laughs> so, and then we designed a new one, which of course is thicker. And uh, it is quieter, but you have more modulation with this one. Because it, it's, like a, it's like a cover, it's like it's is uh, the same sides. When you push one side, you're getting, you're discovering something from the other side. It's like mm-hmm. you cannot having you cannot have everything at the same time. So now our bre- our rotor is quieter, but it will take a little bit more time to wear the pads, to bed in the pads a little more, and is less bitey. I would say that the old one, most of the riders like it, but some riders say, ah, the old rotor was better. So <laughs> again, there is no way to to make a perfect break for everyone. Yeah. Well, is that something that, that people could do though? I mean, could you swap out rotors? I mean, I know as a manufacturer, you know, as a brand, you would say, no, you know, we've we've designed this system to work together, this rotor with this caliper 
but obviously there's a lot of aftermarket choices. So is that something people could do if they're looking for a different feel to go with a, a different rotor from, from another manufacturer? Yeah, okay. So from our side, we still have the old rotor if you're looking for a different feeling. But we uh, we do not really encourage people to change uh, rotors or pads because, especially pads, but also rotor because that product is designed to have that performance with the, the, those pads and those rotors. So we cannot guarantee the performance. Of course, it can happen that someone out there is better than us and designing mm-hmm. rotors. It can be, <laughs> of course. But we spend a lot of time designing our rotors so and uh, if you every rotors we proved out there and we tested out there it doesn't perform good as our rotor on our brakes and trust me we test a lot of rotors so this is the reason why we do not encourage people to do that because the performance will will not the same will be not the same Hmm. yeah that's good to know. And then I also imagine a big part of rotor design is heat management, right? And and is yeah. that is that the main thing that drives the using bigger sizes or is it is it something else in addition to the heat management? Well, uh heat management, that's also a big question because I think there are a lot of misconception about heat management about on the on the hydraulic brakes in mountain bike. Mm. Of course, if you have um, a thicker rotor and you desi- if you design that in a certain way, we'll manage the heat in a better way. But the first source of heating, overheating, is the way how you brake. Mm. And if you brake just too much, but like too much, too much, <laughs> you can decide the rod you can design the rotor as you want you will have heat issues yeah it's not so it really depends the way how you use the brake for example uh, let's say that you are on the alps or coming down with your car on a very long downhill in the mountain mm-hmm. you know that you have to brake with your engine you cannot brake all the time with your with your brakes and could be also i don't know a tesla a porsche a ferrari whatever you want if you brake all the time in a bad way during the downhill you're not surprised at the end of the downhill that your brakes (laughs) are not in a very good condition you're not blame ferrari or porsche or tesla because <laughs> they did a bad they did a, a bad brake so yeah. you say no i have to learn how to brake with my engine how yeah. to use it's the same with uh, it's the same with brakes so so to answer your question of course the rotor if you do a thicker rotor or special design you can manage the heat the overheating in a better way but as a rider, if you have that kind of issue with your brake, the first thing you have to learn is how to use your brakes. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, that a lot of it is mostly just user error. 
So is is there any meaningful advantage to center lock over six bolt rotors? I know you probably offer your rotors in both configurations. Is is one better than the other in any way? Not really. From our testing, we have rotors in both design. It's really a matter of, let's say, um, compatibility, but not not other issues. So they are pretty much the same in uh, in this. I, I would say that in long term, but this is uh, I, I, do not take this as a formula statement. It's more, more as a right. My experience with center lock is that sometimes depend on the cassette you're using, especially the on the hubs you're using, especially the the rear brake. Mm-hmm. They can they can have a long distance a little bit more of play compared to a bolt-in rotor. So I do prefer bolt-in because for me is just uh, longer life. Yeah. And I mean, there are trade-offs just like everything. I mean, center lock, in some ways it could be an easier, quicker system for swapping out rotors. Not that people do that very often, but... Yeah, there are pros and cons for sure. How does the moto world influence mountain bike brakes? Is that sort of driving some of the innovation or is mountain bike braking sort of its own category and and seeing its own innovations apart from the moto world? Well, um, I would say that the moto world, world does not really affect the mountain bike because the hydraulic the hydraulic brakes uh, are the hydraulic disc brakes are pretty much the same put mm-hmm. on mountain bike and motorcycle of course on mountain cycle on a motorcycle you're looking for different powers all the sizing is different you have different rotors so you can go heavier mm-hmm. but main concepts behind the technology are pretty much the same. Uh, so I would not say that that a motorcycle brake is a completely different technology compared to a mountain bike. So in that sense, they influence each what you discover and learn in one of the two fields is you can apply on the other one. Uh, in, in this sense, they will affect and influence each other. But on the other hand, the technology is very similar. Now, maybe we're facing a time where uh, at some point we will have some cross kind of cross. I wouldn't say cross compatibility, but uh, cross influence mm-hmm. because with uh, with the new cargo bikes and heavy e-bikes. Yeah. I can see in the future a com- like a, a mountain bike brake which look feels and based also on weight and uh, sizing it, it it feels a little bit more uh, like a motorcycle brake. Yeah. I can see this happen in the world. Maybe not for the pure uh, mountain bike scene, mm-hmm. but l- think at very big uh, commuting e-bikes or cargo bikes. Yeah, that makes sense where weight isn't as big of a consideration, weight of the brake itself, um, and then also the 
the bikes are heavier, just like motorcycles. And so, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. For, for instance, if you live right now, I don't know, probably also in U.S., uh, do you have cargo bikes doing we do, delivery? Yeah. yeah, doing deliveries sometimes in mm-hmm. some places. Sure. Yeah. Think of those bikes. If those bikes use just the standard uh, mountain bike brake, which is what they do most of the time, uh, and uh, think at the average day of a delivery uh, guy, uh, they their pads is done after one day. So they will they, they will change oh, literally. They change pads every day or every two day. This is not something you do on a motorcycle. So on that kind of technology, you need something different. On that kind of vehicle, you need something different. It needs to be light, has a mountain bike brake, uh, has to be the same size, lever, master cylinder of a mountain bike brake, because in the end you are riding a bike, but the pads needs to be way bigger as a motorcycle pad, for example. So I see some cross influence coming in that field at some point in the near future yeah well what are some of the the biggest or most important innovations that we've seen in hydraulic disc brakes since formula started making them well a lot of innovations um there is also a big topic about uh formula started i remember i talk about that with journalists uh, a lot of time because formula we we aim to be uh we claim actually to be the the first company who did full hydraulic disc brake for mountain bike mm, yeah that was 1993 wow some yeah. people say no it's not true it was shimano first there was hope <laughs> but the, but that's that's the story yeah, Shimano since the beginning, a, for sure. I mean, yeah, since yeah, Shimano did a full hydraulic disc brake for a uh, bicycle, but not for uh, not for mountain bike. Okay, and this is not a small difference because uh, they have they had this kind of technology before the '93, but they put it on a standard uh, bike, city bike, and then they. They are removed from the bike and then they jump back a couple of years later. That means that whatever the reason is, they never release a full hydraulic disc brake for off-road use for mountain bike. Hmm. Then before 93, there was, um, there was two companies in U.S. that they had uh, disc brake with hydraulic caliper, but me- mechanical actuation from the master cylinder, which... What we said at the beginning of our conversation is not exactly the same. So, Formula was the first company to do a full hydraulic disc brake for mountain bike use in 1993, and Hope came the year after in 1994. I would say we were pretty much at the same time with Hope. We just released it, uh, released it a um, couple of months or like half a year before them. And then they were the first one to do a four pots hydraulic disc brake for mountain bike. And then uh, if you ask me, uh, we did a lot of innovation based on uh, on what um, mass production means because, because for example, uh, when we start doing this, that was not such a product as a full hydraulic disc brake for mountain bikes. So the not not a hose supplier or rotor supplier 
So, and back then, Formula was building frame using as hose, uh, the hose you can find in the cockpit of a construction crane, for example. Huh, wow. And uh, as rotors, we were having rotors done by a supplier that was uh, um, knife blade suppliers. Because, uh, so everything was at really at the very beginning. So you had to figure out how to make things work. If you, came, if you come at Formula, you, most of the machine we have in production are built in-house and we still use that and some of them are for example bleeding machines because if you do mass production you need to have a bleeding machine you cannot have uh, the operator doing the bleeding just yeah. one so a lot of things so we did a lot of stuff based on that then the main uh, the main differences I would say the the big advantage I see uh, I think Highest was was a very innovative company back then, because they were the first one who brought on the market uh, a wider rollback. Uh, so the distance uh, in in the quiet, let's say when we're at at quiet, uh, how do you call them? No, quiet maybe is not the right word. Do you know what the rollback is in the caliper? No, I don't. It's it's the distance between the pads while you're not moving the the okay. master cylinder. So when they are uh, static. Right, right, when they're retracted. Exactly, when they're retracted. That's the rollback. And uh, back then, at the very beginning, the rollback was very low on brakes, very narrow. So you had a lot of center centering issues, uh, noisy rubbing stuff like that. Highest was was the first company to bring a wider rollback in the mountain bike use, which was important because uh, in mountain bike you have lighter rotors; they can bend. Sometimes they are not hundred percent straight, and you can perceive the noise uh, uh, easier on a mountain bike. Uh, this kind of technology, like wider rollback, rollback is, uh, is mountain bike specific. On a car, motorcycle, absolutely no problem. You will never hear the noise or the rubbing noise of the brake. You want less rollback because it means that you have more, not more bite, but it's, it's a little bit safer. Let's say that the time while uh, between the moment you push the brakes uh, and the master cylinder and the actual uh, brake is smaller if right. you have a, if you have less rollback yeah so and of course with motorcycle and cars you don't have the problem that your rotor can bend <laughs> because right. they are way bigger so uh, highest was the first one too and i think that was a uh, a big improvement in mountain bike uh, hydraulic disc brake. Yeah, that's interesting. That's something I hadn't thought about. And, you know, even as a home mechanic, it, it still is frustrating sometimes to, you know, line up the rotor and get it in between the caliper. It seems like those those distances are, are very tight. But, yeah, I guess that they w used to be even tighter. And so that's... Exactly, exactly. Cool. And also, what in terms of performance, how have the brakes changed since 1993? I imagine, are they more powerful now? I mean, what you're saying earlier is that 
brakes are are plenty powerful for most people. Um, but but were they in those early days? Were they as powerful back then? They are. They are more powerful. But you have to put it, this is in this in perspective. The mountain bike full hydraulic disc brake for a mountain bike started in '93, and in '93 we already have the technology to stop a Formula One car. So, yeah. So uh, the thing is that. The reason why today are more powerful is not because only today we are able to uh, design that with more power in it. It's because the mountain bike changed. And now the mountain bike are lighter, faster. The average mountain bike is way faster and requires, based on the style and the trails that you ride, they divide it requires more power so you have to develop a brake so yeah to answer your question they are more powerful but not because we could not design with all this power back then but just because the mountain bike evolved and we had to match this evolution doing more powerful brakes of course what really changed is the ergonomic the ergonomic uh, has improved a lot in the years. That's 100% for sure. But also the riding style has uh, uh, has changed. The ergonomic has changed because at some point of the mountain bike history was no one was allowed anymore to brake with two fingers. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I assume that was that was the switch from mechanical to hydraulic. But in 1993, with, with formulas hydraulic, disc brakes did you need to use two fingers or was was one enough to to make them stop let's say that we designed the very first one with a longer lever because uh we knew that the riders were braking with two fingers so that that brake was designed to brake with two fingers you could make it work with one fingers but all the ergonomic was made to make it to to make it works with two fingers yeah. because we were not going to we, we didn't want to change uh riders behavior we were designed a product that matched their riding style and their behavior and back then everyone was uh was breaking with uh, everyone were breaking with uh, uh with two fingers yeah yeah again it's the market the market is kind of dictating what you can do and, and limits you know how much you can change at once yeah so what is the formula philosophy around brake pad components? Uh, you know, I think most people are familiar with the metal and resin uh, options, organic. Um, but yeah, what's, what's kind of the brand's philosophy around those pad compounds? Is one better than the other? Or is there one that can kind of do all conditions and serve all riders? Well, they are different. So... It really depends on the use you are uh, you're looking for. The organic pads are a little bit softer. For, I, I'm an organic pads guy. I do prefer organic pads, but because I do not do super long descent and uh, I don't use the brake that much, not because <laughs> I 
fast because I'm super slow. So I don't right. need to, to break that much. But you know how to break too. I mean, you're not the not the guy that's holding on to the brakes the whole way down. No, I, I try not to hold on my brakes all the time. But the kind of riding that I do do not really require that sorts of style that kind of style because i do not ride super steep or long trails mm-hmm. uh, i'm more a trail rider right so and uh, this is why i do prefer uh, organic pads because they are way faster to bed in uh, they do not take time to get in the right temperature to deliver the right power. So pretty much the first break on the tour is, uh, is, uh, is, the, is a good one. And uh, because I do not ride a lot in the mud or a very steep condition, I don't use the brakes that much. Uh, they st- they have a, a long life, I would say. I don't need to change the pad uh, all the time. But if you are uh, um, super picky uh, with uh, the power uh, and you want to, you, you ride super, uh, super steep descent, long descent, you're riding a lot on the, in the mud, mm-hmm. Uh, you m- probably and you want uh, in this situation to have um, to have a good power all the time and do not change your pads every months. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the uh, uh, the this, this one are a better option, uh, but the low point in my, of like this is just my point of view as a rider. Of course, a cintured pad it will take. A little bit longer to get at the right temperature. Mm. That was more more of an issue back in the days. Back in the days, like a, a, a cintered pad, a metal pad, uh, required temperature. It's like I remember pads back in the day where mm. I'm talking about ten years ago. Is like you, uh, if you do not do a warm up process, you don't have brake. You don't have brake power at the very beginning. Mm. Yeah. Now it's completely different, but still it's not like the organic. And of course, because the in the end, the metal cinderet is harder than the organic, mm-hmm. which is softer, is a little bit noisier. So uh, if this is also important for you, uh, with the cinderet you could have a little bit more noise. This is the reason why aftermarket all brakes all brands are sold with organic because no one wants to have a noisy brake uh, on a brand a brand new noisy brake right interesting well one of the things that you mentioned was uh about braking technique and and learning how to let off the brakes you know a lot of issues or one of the issues that people run into could be due to user error that they're just holding their brakes too much and that's what's heating them up so are there other misconceptions or things people don't know about proper braking technique and and are there ways that as riders we can get better performance out of our brakes yeah there is one there is one especially one that sometimes drives me crazy <laughs> <laughs> it is the on off myth Ah, uh, this brake is too on off. Uh-huh. And uh, again, make you an example. 
the cars. Cars are always very good, for example, talking about brakes. Mm-hmm. I have a Fiat Panda, and the Fiat Panda has the brakes that a Fiat Panda is supposed to have. I mean, they're not they're not super powerful brake. And I do brake on my Panda the way you are supposed to brake on a Panda. If I jump on a Ferrari with Brembo brakes, and I do brake the same way I do brake on my Panda, mm-hmm. I will not move at all. <laughs> yeah, I will not move, literally. What does that mean? That the Ferrari or Brembo engineers build... Uh, the uh, build, uh, I don't know, three millions dollar car with a brake that is too on off. Right. No. No. That means that those are performance brakes, and you have to learn how to use it because they are built on a performance bike. Of course, if you have, let's say, a not very good brakes and you are used to drag your brakes constantly, and you're still moving and going down the hill because your brakes are not that powerful, and you do the same thing on a good brake, you will not move. You will stay there. Or at least you'll lock your wheel up. I mean, that seems to be the problem people have. And, and once that happens, yeah, you don't have, you don't have control. Exactly, because if you if you have a bad brakes and you and you brakes in the same way on a good brakes, a good brakes will stop your wheel, and if you brake all the time, you will not move, and you go down the hill pretty much with your forearms destroyed, blaming the brakes because they are too on off. But if you think about that, if you learn how to brake a good powerful brake will save your forearms because you can less brake, you can brake less, you can brake later, and you can brake softer. Hmm. But you have you have to learn how to use it. Yeah. So on off is a big mis- misconception. Please, if you see readers or people listening to us that are going to the bike shop and then are uh, testing the brakes on the parking lot, just pedaling a little bit, and then boom, just to see uh, this is not a good this is not a good test. Yeah. Well, what about what about um, locking up the rear wheel? I always think again, getting back to thinking about car brakes. You know, most if not all modern cars have anti-lock brakes. Where you know, over time, people learned that that sort of feathering the brakes, you know, like especially in an emergency situation, like pumping the brake and letting off, pumping it um, helped. And so a automatic braking systems now do that for you, right? It like, uh, I don't know what the word is, but it, you know, goes ABA. on and off for you. Yeah. Is, is there a similar analog for mountain biking? I know people have tried it. There are systems out there that claim to offer a similar performance, but is there a way to do that with your hands? Like, is that, would that be helpful? Yeah. I mean, we've talked so many times about ABS on mountain bike brakes or bicycle brakes. Mm -hmm. I, I don't see that happen happening because can you imagine a bike where you do not have control of your brakes right it's easier on a car you can have weight you have uh, pretty much all cars have electronic right now you can put a very big piece of uh, chunk 
electronic things in your car, which is heavy and uh, it's different. The mountain bike is different. It's a different sport. It's a different vehicle. It's, a, it's also a two wheels vehicle. It's not exactly the same. So, um, yeah. I don't see ABS being uh, maybe on cargo bikes, like but performance riding mountain bike, enduro trail. Uh, I would not be I would not be relaxed <laughs> with that kind of system. Yeah. I want control of my brakes. Right. Yeah. It's hard to trust it. Um, but yeah, we are seeing electronics being added to more and more parts of the bike, you know, we're seeing it even in suspension where it controls your suspension. And yeah, obviously that hasn't taken off in a big way with riders at least because it does take away that control and, and it's hard to sort of trust that. Yeah, that's true. But if you think about electric cars, some of them, they have the electromagnetic, uh, brakes, but they have the mechanical too, just in case those brakes fails. So just an emergency case. So it, it is, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't see this happen on mountain bike, at least not in the near future. Uh, talking about blocking the wheels, of course, we're talking about the rear wheels because the front wheels would be dangerous. <laughs> right. You definitely so, don't want to lock that one. Yeah, I think you... Uh, if you design the brake in a good way, because you have modulation, sometimes the modulation is very important on a brake because it's not necessary the way how you, uh, how you, how many times, let's say, you pump on the brake, mm-hmm. but it can be also the point where you are with your lever. So you're applying less or more power. So if you have a good modulation and you have you learn how to use that modulation, you can easily overcome the issue of blocking your rear wheel. Mm. Of course, sometimes we faced uh, many times as mountain biker that situation where at some point everything is out of control. You are in a speed in a steep trail, and uh, your instinct is to pull the rear and this doesn't really makes everything easier because you just start sliding down the hill but i don't think you can really do anything about that besides learning how to ride steep trails better so yeah yeah yeah, that's good advice so finally i want to ask you what are some things that could possibly be improved about modern disc brakes for mountain bikes that's that's a good question. Um, again, the next step that I see is on uh, having the right brakes for uh, the right brakes for a new generation of bikes or vehicles. So, for the for the standard mountain bike, the bike that we see right now. We are in a good spot with brakes. I don't think the brakes that you have out there are not enough to manage what these bikes can do. Of course, if in uh, 10 years' time we face the same revolution we faced in the last 10 years with wheel sides and downhill, and we have the riders that uh, will ride the downhill courses twice as fast as they were doing five years ago, may we have to redesign the brake. As we were discussing before, the brakes will 
evolve with the bike. If the bike gets faster and more extreme in some sense, maybe at some point uh, we have to do it a more powerful brake. But for now, we have plenty of power. I don't see that happen. Different for new vehicles because e-mobility is at the very beginning and uh, has already brought to the market new vehicles like the cargo bikes, for example. So we don't know what other kind of vehicles we will have in the future for e-mobility. So uh, maybe uh, at some point we will have to develop new product for mm, those specific uh, vehicles. Yeah, interesting. Well, Vittorio, uh, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us about brakes. I know I learned a lot and I'm sure our listeners have as well. So thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. It was really a pleasure. And you can learn more about some of the brakes that we talked about specifically here at rideformula.com. That's all we've got this week. We'll talk to you again next week. <laughs>